First Kings chapter 14. Well, I mentioned this this morning, but to clarify, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Jeroboam being the first king of the northern kingdom, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, king of the southern kingdom. Both of those guys, their theme song could have been, I Did It My Way by Frank Sinatra. The final verse of that song by Frank Sinatra actually starts similar to a couple of David's psalms, but it ends much differently. He starts with the line, for what is man? David said that, but he came to a very different conclusion. (laughs) Sinatra said, for what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. Not to say the things that he truly feels, and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows and did it my way. David asked that question, what is man? But he saw himself as small. What is man that you should think of him or the son of man? When he was looking at the stars, he saw how vast the creation was and how small he was. What am I? Sinatra saw himself as big. Well, David had failures, but he bent the knee. Despite a message from God and miracles to prove it, Jeroboam refused to kneel. It's not to be lauded when you take the blows just because you're stubborn and proud. That's not something to boast about, because the blows here are about to get far more severe for Jeroboam. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And at that time, we're going to set the stage here, at that time, Abijah the son of Jeroboam fell sick. Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise, I pray you, and disguise yourself, that you be not known to be the wife of Jeroboam, and get you to Shiloh. Behold, there is Ahijah the prophet, his son's Abijah. This is Ahijah the prophet, which told me that I should be king over that people. Go see him. And take with you ten loaves and cracknels and a cruise of honey, and go to him. He shall tell you what shall become of the child. So the setting is Jeroboam's son is sick. It tells us at that time. What time? Well, it's talking about the events of verses 33 and 34 of the previous chapter, that Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but he continued to make people priests who were not from the tribe of Levi, continued to offer offerings at these worship centers that he had set up. He had continued the golden bull worship and everything else, even though God had confronted him and done a miracle. Well, at that time, it says that Jeroboam's doing his own thing, his own way, that Jeroboam's oldest son and heir to the throne, Abijah, fell sick. Now, Abijah's name means the Lord is my father, Jehovah's my father, which goes to show that Jeroboam never saw himself as an idolater. It's possible even Jeroboam, after he set up the worship centers with the golden bulls, it's possibly comforted himself by saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as Judah. They're worshiping other gods. I'm doing this just a little bit differently. He's probably thinking, I bent the rules, but I'm still worshiping the Lord. And we've been talking a lot about worship in First Kings, that worship isn't worship if it's done my way. The very nature of worship is the concept of bowing down, of yielding to someone else. And so, in addition to being wrong about worship, we should also never comfort ourselves in our disobedience just because we're not as bad as someone else. Never. That Jeroboam still considered himself a good enough believer is plain by his next actions. 
For he says to his wife in verse 2, Arise, I pray you, and disguise yourself, that you won't be recognized as my wife. And then go to Shiloh. Behold, there's Ahijah the prophet. Remember, he's the guy that told me I should be king over this people. Jeroboam got good news in a bad situation from this prophet the last time. Perhaps he'll get some good news from him again. Isn't it interesting how, as human beings, we remember certain things but not other things? Like he remembers that part. This guy met me in the field when I was ready to commit insurrection, and he steered me back on the path and told me this amazing news, I'm going to be king. Yeah, he also told you don't worship idols or don't go away from the Lord. Don't be like David who remain loyal to the Lord, otherwise he'll cut you off. He forgot that part. And yet he says, go ahead through with this plan. And part of the disguise is verse 3, take with you ten loaves and and cracknels, the word cracknels there means old crumbling bread. In other words, a person of humble positions offering. It's part of the disguise. Go to him, and then he'll tell you what will become of the child. This is so interesting because Jeroboam believes, therefore, that if… This is what he's saying. If you go and he knows who you are, he's not going to give me an honest answer. He's going to manipulate the situation. I want an honest answer from God, so go in disguise. Jeroboam believed the prophets were against him. The the example of this is when the prophet from Judah came up, and he said to him, he said, because you've done this, God's going to judge you, and this altar is going to miraculously break to prove it. And Jeroboam said, arrest that man, another one of these guys against me. And his hand immediately was paralyzed, and he said, hey… Maybe you're you're one of the real deals. And he said, intercede to the Lord for me that he heals me. And he did. But then he invited him over and he said, let's talk this through. I'll take care of you and you take care of me. But the prophet said, no, I'm not doing that. But remember, he disobeyed the Lord when he didn't go straight home and God killed him. Well, Jeroboam took that news as, ha, he was no better than me. And in his mind, it was settled. All the prophets are against me. So, He tells her to go incognito so that they'll tell him the truth instead of trying to use his son's sickness to manipulate him into doing what they want. You see, Jeroboam had convinced himself that God wasn't upset with him, that the prophets were doing things that were politically necessary in their opinion, but not necessarily God's will. And wasn't the supernatural death of that prophet from Judah proof of that? If I am stubborn enough… I can spin facts however I want, if I'm stubborn enough. But that doesn't make it true. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, listen, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Truth is truth. So this is one of the reasons it's good to be in God's word, because God's word lays bare all those lies. Now, Sometimes those lies are not obvious to us. For example, there have been times in my life when I felt very overwhelmed by a situation, whether it was a financial situation or a relationship or an emotional situation or, you know, a church situation, whatever it might be, and you start telling yourself, this is what's going to happen. But no one knows what's going to happen except the Lord. So that's a lie that's come in because there's no guarantee. It's not truth because it's something that's a possibility in the future, but it's not actually true. 
In fact, the Bible tells us that the, when it lists out the things we're supposed to think about, the very first requirement we're supposed to ask ourselves is, is it true? Whatsoever things are true, lovely, of good report, be any virtue, any praise. There's other things in there, but the one is truth. Is it true? And the cool part is, is when you come to the Bible, you come to God's Word, it lays bare all those lies, and you can start to recognize it and go, you know what? I've got this thought that's overwhelming me, and I can see evidence of how it could happen, but the truth is, it hasn't happened yet. And then, of course, the more insidious lies, which are the ones we tell ourselves, like Jeroboam is doing here. God's Word lays bare all those lies, and it brings us out of the fairy tale world we create in our own mind, and it brings us back into reality, and it sets us free. Well, this very silly plan is not really even necessary because look at verse 4. It says, And Jeroboam's wife did so and arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah, but Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were set by reason of his age. The phrase, his eyes were set, means they didn't move. They didn't, the eyes didn't follow. I have a a handicapped, a severely handicapped brother. He's in his 20s now. But when one of the reasons that you could tell early on that something was not right is his eyes wouldn't follow you. And so that's the idea here with this, this prophet is that his eyes didn't follow people anymore. He was blind. And so he couldn't even see the disguise. There have been so many times when I, I go through all my nonsense, and then you, you arrive at the situation, and the Lord's like, <laughs> feel pretty silly, don't you? And you go, what was I doing? All this hard work, and it wasn't even necessary. This also lets us know that some time has gone by. It had been at least a decade since Jeroboam had seen Abijah, maybe even 20 years. A lot had changed for both of them in that time. Ahijah lost his sight. But Ahijah was still close to the Lord where Jeroboam was not. And so even though he couldn't see, the Lord who sees everything let him know what was going on. Verse 5, and the Lord said unto Ahijah, behold, the wife of Jeroboam comes to ask a thing of you for her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say unto her, for it shall be when she comes in that she will feign herself, pretend to be another woman." I am so grateful. I wasn't in the moment, but I am so grateful for the individuals that God whispered something in their ear about me, too. It's mostly happened in my young Christian life when I had a lot of struggles. And God would speak to someone else, and they would come talk to me, and I'd be like, how'd you know? My kids do that all the time when they're younger. How'd you know? And I say, because God tells me stuff, because He loves you, and He cares about you. He doesn't want you to get away with nonsense. Well, God tells him. I always read this story and just kind of chuckle because why did Jeroboam think his wife would get a supernatural answer from God without being recognized by God? God knows what you and I are going to do before we do it. And everything we end up doing is laid bare before him. In Hebrews chapter 4, 13, it, it says those exact words. It says in Hebrews 4.13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest or unveiled in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we must give account. Everything, he sees it. I mean, it's, nothing's hidden from him, nothing's unseen. But the problem is when we're not walking with the Lord, we have blind spots like that. 
When I'm doing things my way, I don't see the road I'm on clearly anymore, and I end up with faulty reasoning like Jeroboam here. And again, that's why God gave us His Word. The verse right before that in Hebrews 4 verse 12, it says the Word of God is quick and live and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between the soul all the way down to the spirit. The Word of God has the ability to reveal things to us that we don't even see about ourselves. There have been those times when I've just been sitting on the porch or in my room or on the couch reading my Bible, and I'll be reading it, and I'll read about something that somebody else did or a bad attitude they had or, or whatever it might be, and I'm like, I don't deal with that, do I, Lord? And then the Lord's like, let's talk. And it's like, what? And then, you know, you start making all your excuses about, well, no, no, I, I mean, how, how do I? And then you just begin to ask the Lord, search my heart, and then he starts bringing stuff to the surface, and you're like, oh, I've told this story a thousand times, but I remember I was on my way to go meet with somebody. I'd gotten a phone call, and it was, it was bad. The situation was bad, and I had to go step into a family situation that was bad, and I was mad. Like, I was not happy. I was going to go there, and I was going to tear things up. I'm like, I can't believe this happened. Well, we talked about this. We've worked through this, and well, I'm in the car, and I'm like, if they don't receive what I say, they're going the, to get the son of thunder. You know, and I'm driving, and I'm just like, Lord, I know, you know, I know I'm upset, but my heart's in the right spot. You know, it's because I love him. It's because I care about him. And then that still small voice just said, you don't love him. I was like, what do you mean I don't love him? And I started listing out all the things I'd done, and you don't love him. And I'm like, how do I verify this to be true? And I pulled off to the side of the road, and I opened my Bible, and I started going through 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Lord, I've been very patient. Love is kind. Lord, I have been absolutely kind. And then I went down to one and said, love does not seek its own. And the Holy Spirit said to me at that moment, he said, Will, if you don't get the response you want, you're not going to love them. And that's why I said that to you. You don't love them. I was busted. I would have never known that unless I had come to God's Word and He had revealed that. God's Word can get through all the emotions and all of the thought processes, and it can get right to the heart of our spirit, the part of us that fellowships with God, and show us the part that is not yielded to the Holy Spirit, that's not like Him. It has the ability to make me aware of my blind spots so I don't march into a situation with the wrong attitude. So I don't act in silly ways like Jeroboam did here. Well, verse 6, and it was so that when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in at the door, that he said, come in, thou wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend yourself to be another? For I am sent to you with heavy tidings. Whew. First off, that last phrase has to have broken mom's heart, of course, but the very thought there where he says to her, you think you've been sent to me. I've been sent to you. All Jeroboam's planning, all the thinking behind it, what do we do? What do we do? Let's do this. It was undone like that. A waste of time. Maybe you've been spinning your wheels. Maybe you've been experiencing that. It's like, man, nothing's working. Everything I do is just not working. Well, maybe... You've been deceiving yourself into wasting time. You know, if that's the case, then maybe ask God to show you what those blind spots are. Lord, where am I, spin where am I deceiving myself and spinning my wheels as a result? Where am I 
maybe handling things in a way that's not pleasing to you or maybe even silly because I'm, I've tricked myself. <laughs> well, when he says here that the news is going to be heavy, in other words, it's something that's going to be difficult to hear or it's going to be hardship. This is not going to be good news about your son. And so in verse 7, he says to her, go. Not only did Jeroboam waste his time and energy, he wasted his wife's time and energy. She comes and then she has to go immediately. All the food she prepped, everything she brought, all the careful planning. Maybe I think I can handle the blows, but what about the others I put in the line of fire by my stubborn pride? It's hard enough the news that she's going to hear, but to hear it like this, go, tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, for as much as I exalted you from among the people and made you prince over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my eyes. But since you have done evil above all that was before you, for you have gone and made you other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam. Go back to verse 7 and 8. The Lord lays out Jeroboam's failure to follow him. He says, I kept my promise to you. I exalted you. I made you king over this people. I did everything that I told you I would do. I tore the kingdom away from the house of David, and I gave it to you. And yet, you have not been like my servant David. That was the one thing I asked you to do. Again, covenants and character, the whole theme of this book. God keeps His Word. He never fails. He does what He says even when we don't do what we say. God is faithful and true always and forever. He says to him, I did my part, and yet you did not do your part. I asked you to be like my servant David, who kept my commandments, followed me with all his heart, to do only that which was right in mine eyes. God didn't ask him to be a perfect king or even the best king. He just asked him to remain loyal to him like David did. And God wants the same thing from you and me. Psalm 103 is, is such a, a good psalm in so many ways. It talks about the blessings that God gives to us, you know, forgives all our sin, heals all our diseases, just all the goodness of God. But then you get down a little bit further and you can see the Lord's heart towards us. Psalm 103 verse 8, it says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Now, if, if you hear those words, you think, hey, that sounds like something else I heard. God say to someone else. You're right. He said it to Moses. Remember when Moses said, show me your glory? And the Lord said, I can't, but I'll declare my name to you. And so here's the Lord, sticks Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he walks by and he declares, I am the Lord, the Lord God. And then he says these words, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plentiful in mercy. He goes and he says more things, and then he says, and I also visit the iniquity upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, he says, I don't just excuse sin. I'm merciful and I'm gracious, but I don't just excuse sin. And yet when we get to Psalm 103 here where David's writing, he explains the Lord is that. But then in the part where maybe he'd get to how God doesn't just excuse sin, he says this, he will not always chide. The word there for chide, it means to strive. In other words, even when he disciplines us, he doesn't do so forever. 
neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. David is saying, you know, listen, I know the Lord says that, but when we come looking for mercy, he gives us mercy, even when we've blown it. For, he says, as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Why? For like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God's standard is perfection, never changes, but he knows your weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. And he wants to be merciful and forgive us. His heart is towards us. But he says, the one thing I'm asking for is that you reverence me. That's what he had asked for when he talked to Jeroboam. And he said, be like David. David had failures, but he reverenced me. He reverenced me. He didn't go give that, that fear, that worship to another God, ever. God knew Jeroboam's fears. I can't imagine what it'd be like as you, you're in this situation and you think to yourself, okay, this is a pretty tenuous situation. Like if you just look at the politics of things, you look at the geography, you look at all the, the facts that are out there in front of you of how this might turn out for you, and you think, this is scary. And maybe, maybe you're in a situation like that right now. You, you lay out all the facts and you go, this is scary. Maybe you're like Hezekiah when the Rabshakeh, the general of the Assyrian armies, comes up and he just reads out this threat against the nation and basically says, no other God of any other nation has stopped us and don't let King Hezekiah tell you to trust in the Lord because he won't stop us either. And you're thinking, all my people heard that where they laid siege, they've defeated everybody they've come up against, they conquered Israel, the northern kingdom already. And he takes it, and instead of looking at all those facts and then coming to a conclusion on his own, he lays it before the Lord and he goes, Lord, look at what they said. I've had multiple times where I've, in my heart, said, Lord, look at what this is saying. Look at what this doctor's saying. Look at what this person's saying. Look at what you know, the insurance company's saying. Look at what my boss is saying or my company's saying. Or look at what this person is saying. Look at what the enemy's saying. God knows all of our weaknesses that when we see these things, we get scared or worried. We don't know what to do. He pities us like a father pities his child. At times, my kids would come to me with their struggles and didn't know what to do, and your heart just breaks. I mean, sometimes you're frustrated, but in those moments when there's that humility and they're just scared or they don't know what to do, and your heart just breaks. Your heart's toward them. How much more our Heavenly Father? His heart's towards us. So if Jeroboam, he, God knew all those fears. He knew all those facts. But Jeroboam needed to take those fears and those facts to the Lord trusting that God would keep his promise. What we need to do in those situations is we need to go and lay it out before the Lord and go, Lord, I don't see how you're going to keep your promise in light of all this, but I'm choosing to trust you instead of giving to my fear or my worry or my own solutions. Instead, Jeroboam abandoned the Lord for his own invented worship system. Verse 9, not only did you not stay loyal to me, but verse 9, he says, you have done evil 
above all that were before you, for you have gone and made you other gods and metal images to provoke me to anger, and you've cast me behind your back. You say, how did he do evil more than anybody that came before him? Other leaders had led the nation into idolatry uh, from the time of Judges up to Solomon. But I think the reason that the Lord says that no one had done this quite this way yet is because I don't think any of them had done it in such a deceptive way. Remember, Jeroboam's spin on this was he had twisted God's Word to make it sound like he was restoring the true worship of Israel's forefathers. This is how Aaron led us in worship, our first high priest. It's better to be lost than to know the truth and twist it to lead others astray. So Jesus said, in Matthew 18, verse 6, he said, you deceive one of my little ones. He said, it's better for you to put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the middle of the sea. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like a good way to go. So Abijah here, he, what he's doing is, the Lord is doing through Abijah, the prophet, is he's, or Abijah, is that he's exposing Jeroboam's blind spot. The Lord says to him, Jeroboam, you think you're not so bad that you've still been somewhat loyal to the Lord even though you've warped things a little bit. But the truth is, he says, Jeroboam, you've abandoned me. You cast me behind your back, and you went your own way. And so instead of the blessing that God promised to Jeroboam, God will now bring judgment upon Jeroboam. Verse 10, therefore behold, I didn't fail, but because you've sinned, now he says, I have to do something about it. Behold, I will bring evil. Evil is not evil in the sense of wrong. The word here means disaster, ruin, calamity, bad times. I'm going to bring bad times upon the house of Jeroboam, calamity, ruin. And I will cut off from Jeroboam him. I probably, in our, back then you could say these King James words because it was common language. These days it's considered foul language. But I'll translate for you. He says, and will cut off him from Jeroboam that urinates against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man takes away dung till it be all gone. Him that dies of Jeroboam in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dies in the field shall the birds of the air eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Because you've abandoned me and gone into idolatry, I'm going to bring ruin upon your family, Jeroboam. I'm going to cut off. The word there means to violently cut down, to destroy or kill every one of your male descendants, him that urinates against the wall. Um, I don't need to describe that anymore, do I? (laughs) You of all people, Nelson, would be uncomfortable by something I was going to say. That's the strangest thing I've heard this year. We would have Bible study at the previous church I pastored. Sorry, Nelson. And Nelson and Laura would be there. They were faithful every Sunday night. And it was a small group, so we had time for people to ask questions and talk. And Nelson would get going, and you would see Laura's face just begin to redden, turn red. (laughs) I do want to pause for a second here. The Bible clearly defines men and women by their biology. Clearly defines them by their biology. I understand that there are views out there that want to define it differently. I'm just explaining to you how the Bible defines it. And according to the Bible, being male or female is not a way you feel. It's not a way you think. It's not even a way of, that you might behave. It's a way that we've been created by God. Now, 
Because we live in a fallen world, our DNA is corrupted, so sometimes those mutations in our DNA create physical defects where things aren't exactly working like they're supposed to. But those cases are extremely rare, and even in those cases, a person is still either male or female biologically, in every case, always. There is, you may have heard the phrase like hermaphrodite, that there's no such thing. It's a phrase we use to describe a a physical mutation, but there's no such thing as an actual person who is both male and female. There's no such thing. They don't exist. So, the idea here is that the Bible is explaining that men and women are defined by their biology. Now, when I decide to reject that, in essence, I'm making myself my own God because I'm creating myself anew. But the new thing I'm creating is in opposition to reality and to the Lord who made me. It is the epitome of doing things my way, which is why it's not okay. So it's defining here, it says, I'm going to cut off every male descendant that you have. And he explains, him that shut up and left in Israel, the, uh, the word here, end, actually means even, I don't care where they are. Shut up means if they're a prisoner somewhere, left means if they're roaming as a free man. It doesn't matter whether they're shut up somewhere hiding or they're roaming free and don't think they have a care in the world. I will find them and I will get them. Wherever your male descendants are, Jeroboam, I will find them. And he says, I will bury them in the ground like a man does with his waist. The dynasty I promised you will never happen now. And none of them will die of old age. Verse 11, him that dies of Jeroboam in the city will the dogs eat him that dies in the field, the birds of the area. That is not something we let happen to our loved ones. We give them a burial or, or of some way, shape, or form. We cremate them. We, we give them a funeral. We, we have a memorial service. We celebrate their life. So the idea is if they're left, their body, their corpse is left to be eaten by animals or birds, the idea is it's a violent death. It's a, a death that occurs where no one's you know, able to, to do something about the body. They will die in awful ways, all of them, for the Lord has spoken it. Now, we can understand why the prophet said to her, I have heavy news, heavy tidings. It's a heavy judgment from God. But rather than look at that and go, why is God so heavy? I think we should realize that if God is going to such heavy lengths, it shows just how serious and awful Jeroboam's sin was. Doing it my way never just affects me. It has consequences for those who are closest to me, even when they aren't doing it their way. Look at verse 12. Arise thou therefore, he's saying this to Jeroboam's wife, arise and get you to your house, and when your feet enter into the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found some good thing toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Now, we read this story, and we're like, why is God killing kids? God's not killing any kids. The word child here is a bad translation. It just means a male child. This guy's likely in his 20s, even possibly in his 30s at this point in time. I realize as a mom, that doesn't matter to you. But the idea here is there's not just some little baby that's dying. And the Lord says, rather than this be a bad thing, that he's not going to recover from this sickness, letting him die is God being merciful. He says, for only him, he will come to the grave. In other words, he'll get a burial, you know, he'll die in peace. But the reason is, is because in him, 
there is found some good thing toward the Lord in your family. The word there, good thing, it speaks of someone's piety, that they live a life that pleases the Lord. The rabbis, I don't know if this is true, but they taught that this young man had rejected his father's worship system, that he encouraged Israelis, don't go to my dad's worship sites. Go down to Jerusalem and worship where you're supposed to go, which, again, I don't know if he did that, but if he did, good on him. It does bring up the question, though, okay, well, if this guy's like following the Lord and he's pleasing the Lord, he's pious, he's a pious man, he loves the Lord, then why not just kill dad and let him take over and so he can fix stuff? Well, that's the part where we need to remember that we aren't God and we don't know all the things that he knows. Maybe the Lord knew that Abijah, his son, would end up in a power struggle with his other brothers because they were wicked. Maybe he knew that Abijah's piety wouldn't change anything. Verse 14 seems to hint that the rest of these guys would have influenced him. Well, whatever the reason, God decided to take him home peacefully rather than let him experience what the rest of the family would, because they would die violently. Verse 14, moreover, the Lord shall raise him up a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam that day, but what? Even now. No dynasty for you, Jeroboam. A different king will be crowned, and he's going to wipe out all of your descendants. It says, on that day. In other words, there's no turning this around, Jeroboam. I've already set the specific day that it will happen. Now, the prophet says, but what? Even now. Literally, it means, but what am I talking about? The day's going to be here so soon that I can say it's already here. Yes, God's picked a specific day, but it might as well be tomorrow because it's that close around the corner. This leads me to believe that Jeroboam is way near to the end of his reign when this event happens here, which means his oldest son is definitely in his late 20s and maybe even in his mid-30s at this point. Well, Jeroboam doing things his way didn't just negatively affect his family. It affected the entire northern kingdom. Verse 15 for the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he shall root up Israel out of this good land which he gave to their fathers, and shall scatter them beyond the river because they have made groves, provoking the Lord to anger. And he shall give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who did sin and who made Israel to sin. The prophet says Jeroboam's day might be near, but the nation's day might as well be near too because God is going to smite them. He's going to smite them like a reed. The word there refers to like one of those river reeds that you see that's got the, it's got the, it's a skinny reed, but up top it's got the kind of the tubular part on the top. Looks like a, like a thing of grain, but in the water. He says, like that thing blows in the wind, it sways to and fro. I'm going to shake them just like that. And I'm going to root them up out of this good land and scatter them beyond the river. The river there, of course, is the Euphrates. And this is exactly what the Lord did to Israel. The Assyrians, just 200 years from what we're reading about here, right around 200 years, the Assyrians came and did just that. They conquered them and took them across the Euphrates and scattered them all throughout their empire. Why is God smiting them? Well, He says, because they have made their groves. The word groves here refers to the Asherah poles. These are wooden idols to Asherah, the goddess of good fortune, and sexual pleasure. 
I'm not going to go into what they did tonight, but it's not pretty. Even though Jeroboam didn't build those sites, what the Lord is saying, though, is that your worship centers, Jeroboam, your golden bulls, they stumbled the people to go back into this stuff. And so I'm holding you accountable for this, and I'm holding you accountable for your own sin. Verse 16, he'll give them up because they followed you instead of me. Because they worshiped at your worship sites, and then they went further than that and got involved in worshiping other gods. They might be saying, well, why judge the people if this is Jeroboam's fault? Well, because following the Lord's an open book test. His law was available for anyone who wanted to know it. And they decided to follow their king and then even go farther than him into idolatry. They were responsible for those decisions. We read earlier about the woe that Jesus pronounced on those who stumble one of God's kids, but even if like someone else has deceived me or stumbled me, that doesn't absolve me of responsibility. In Acts 17, 11, Paul commended the Bereans. He says they were more noble than the Christians in Thessalonica or the, 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 the um, Jewish people there in Thessalonica that he, in the synagogues that he was talking to. He goes, because the, the Jewish people in Berea, they looked me up afterwards. It says they searched the Scriptures to see if what I was saying was true. We got the esteemed Paul tonight. It's going to, Rabbi Paul going to come share with us tonight. And Paul, and he preached the gospel, shared how Jesus was the promised Messiah. And they said, that's very interesting, Paul. We're going to go look up at what the Bible has to say. And Paul was like, yeah. <laughs> he was like, this is awesome. You guys are great. I love it that you don't just take my word for it. Always check out someone who claims to speak for the Lord whether it's a pastor or a preacher or even in this case, Jeroboam being a politician. Just because Governor Newsom of California quotes Mark 12, 31 to support abortion doesn't mean he's leading us to the Lord. And just because President Donald Trump said that 2 Corinthians 3, 17 speaks of civil liberty does not mean that he's leading us to the Lord. So two very influential people who use Scripture incorrectly. We need to check out anyone who claims to speak for the Lord or on the Lord's behalf because I'm responsible for what I do. I'm going to be held accountable based on what God says, not because someone else said God said. Verse 17, Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. Terzah, because at some point Jeroboam moved his capital from Shechem to here. It doesn't tell us, but here it is now. Terza is a few miles northeast of Shechem. It will be the capital of the northern kingdom until a later king named Omri constructs a massive palace in Samaria. Well, she came back to the palace there in Terza, and when she came to the threshold of the door, her son died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the hand of his servant, Ahijah, the prophet. God keeps his word. Even in judgment, he is always faithful to his word. Verse 19, and the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred, how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the days which Jeroboam reigned, they were 22 years. And he slept with his fathers, and Nadab his son reigned in his place. Despite God's command for Israel and Judah, their leaders, not to fight wars against each other, they regularly did. So this is part of his legacy too. 
And it tells us, if you want to find out, the writer basically saying, I'm not writing to give you a full story. If you want to get the full story, read the records, the chronicles, the record keepers, accounts of Jeroboam's life. But the truth is, after everything he did, he died. And he didn't die an easy death. Chronicles tells us that God struck him dead after a major defeat in a battle against Rehoboam's son. He did not go to the grave in peace. Doing it my way, thinking I can handle God's blows when I defy Him is not a wise decision. God is so merciful, and in my prosperity, I can sometimes deceive myself into thinking, well, I've survived. God didn't get me, or even I've won. I was so stubborn, I finally got my way, and He let me, let me off. But God is being merciful. His kindness is trying to draw us to repentance. The truth is, God's Spirit won't always strive with me that way, though. Eventually, I run out of time. And when God's hammer falls, no one can live through that blow. Well, Jeroboam wasn't the only one to do things his way. Verse 21, And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord did choose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. It's almost like a reminder to his readers Remember, Jeroboam didn't have a right to choose where his people worship because God already picked Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess, and Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him, the Lord, to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. Idolatry just multiplied all over the nation. All of Solomon's work was undone in one generation. He built the temple for a place to worship, and Israel had worship sites on every hill and every forest. And that's the danger of compromise and sin. A lifetime or even generations of faithfulness can be unraveled very quickly when I compromise. Rampant idolatry is bad enough, but Judah went even farther from the Lord. Verse 24, and there were also sodomites in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. The reference here to these sodomites, it means male prostitutes, usually tied to these worship sites and part of the worship rituals that took place at those sites. Now, this is not a feminist movement in Israel calling for equal participation in prostitution. These were male prostitutes hired by men. It is popular today to say that the Bible never teaches that homosexual sex is a sin, or that God was only opposed to male prostitution in the Old Testament, not a loving homosexual relationship. That is not true. In Leviticus 18, verse 22, the Lord makes it very clear how He feels about same-sex sexual activity. He says in Leviticus 18, 18, 22, you shall not lie with mankind as with womankind, it is abomination, period. There's no mention of ritual prostitution there. The abomination here is clearly a romantic relationship between two men, not prostitution. In fact, it was a capital crime in Israel equal to adultery, idolatry, or kidnapping. Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man lies also with mankind as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. 
That word abomination, it's the same word that God uses to describe an idol, something he hates because that idol exalts itself against what is true and right. It exalts itself against what he created. And when I decide to cross sexual boundaries that God has set in place, I am deciding to do things my way, to create my own set of rules for sex and romance, and therefore I make myself my own God, answerable to no one but myself. Now, some might say, well, that's the Old Testament. You're right. In the New Testament, it says the same thing. In Matthew 15, verses 19 to 20, Jesus says, for out of the mouth… Let me just read it to you. Matthew 15, verses 19 and 20. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. When, I think it was the Hillsong pastor in New York who very famously said, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. That's not a true statement. I understand what he's trying to communicate, but it's not honest. Jesus uses the word fornication there, which refers to all kinds of sexual sin. He's making a direct reference to everything that God listed in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. He's confirming that God was opposed to that then, it was an abomination then, and it still is now, just like murder and adultery and all these other things are abominations. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Paul says, do you not know that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to explain, you know, what some of these behaviors are. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. And then he explains, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And then he lists two things, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. And again, I don't want to get into too much detail on those two words, but they describe both parts of a same-sex relationship, both sides. Both sides of the same-sex relationship. He says those things are wrong. And the Bible tells us, you know, some people say, man, why do Christians harp on homosexuality? We're not harping on homosexuality from an individual basis. Most of the time when people are talking about it, we're talking about it culturally in a broad way. When we talk about homosexuality, same-sex sin, it is still, it's no different than adultery or anything else in the sense that God can forgive it and Jesus died for it just like he died for anything else. However, when a culture deteriorates like God's describing here through the writer of 1 Kings, when a culture deteriorates into rampant sexual sin, and it marks out specifically same-sex sexual sin, it explains that that culture has gotten very far from God. And so, when we talk about this, the chief concern is, is that this is evidence that our culture has gotten very far away from God as a whole. To the individual, no, there is no greater sin. But when we're examining a culture like the writer of 1 Kings is here, he brings this up when he's saying, you know how bad things were? There were sodomites in the land. He's explaining how far the culture, the people had gotten from the Lord. And all of this happened under Rehoboam's leadership, so God has to judge him too. And so in verse 25, it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem five years into his reign, not long at all. 
And it says, he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He even took away all. And he took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. This is the Pharaoh who had harbored some of Solomon's enemies. Perhaps a divided kingdom emboldened him to invade. But whatever the reason, it was God's judgment that permitted it to happen. And so we see all of Solomon's work is undone. Twenty years of Solomon's labor, undone. All the gold he procured, all the labor he forced people, his people to work on, to make all these things, gone. And yet, does Rehoboam repent? Nope. Just like Jeroboam, he soldiers on because the appearance of power is more important than reality. Verse 27, and King Rehoboam made in their place brass shields and committed them under the hands of the chief of the guard, which kept the door of the king's house. And it was so when the king went into the house of the Lord that the guard bare them and then brought them back into the guard chamber. They would come out pretending like, we're still wealthy, we still have all this pride, things are great. And then when they go back in, they put them away. Verse 29, now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days, and Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess, and Abijam his son reigned in his place. He also disobeyed God's command not to fight his kinsmen. And so, God's estimation is they both did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. His evaluation of their kingship and their lives is they did wrong, they did not please me. And so passes away two kings who did it their way, and they both left their family and their nation worse off as a result. I disagree with Mr. Sinatra. I think it's better to say the words of someone who kneels, especially when the one that you are kneeling to loves you with an everlasting love and always has your best in mind. Amen? Amen. Covenants and character. Let's not be like these two guys. Let's do our part by faithfully trusting that God is always faithful to his part. Let's all stand. Lord, I think of that song we sing, that you are good, you are good, even when there's nothing good in me. We're so grateful, Lord, that you know our frame, that we're simply dust. You know our fears, you know our worries, you know all the things that consume our thoughts. But Lord, rather than be like Rehoboam and Jeroboam, who the appearance of power or or things, that things being good, the appearance of that being more important than the reality of being right with you, we don't want to imitate them. We don't want that kind of character in our lives. We want to be those, Lord, who serve you genuinely. And so I, I pray that you would show us if we have blind spots. Maybe you've already put your finger on some things tonight, but if not, show us where we have blind spots, Lord, that we can be aware about things that are not pleasing you, and we can bring them to you and lay them at your feet and go forward with you. We love you. We don't want to do things our way, Lord. We commit to you now to do things your way because we know your way is best because you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.